Well, church, let's turn to the book of Galatians. Let's open up God's word and turn to Galatians. And let me begin by reading our text for this morning. Galatians 4, we're in verses 8 to 11. Galatians 4, verses 8 to 11. God's word says this. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's God's word. Clear God's word, like the gospel. The gospel message is simple, straightforward, and clear. That's what we've been learning in our study, Galatians. The gospel is crystal clear. The gospel message is that God is the holy creator. Genesis 1, right through those opening pages, Old Testament onto the New. God is the holy creator. Our God created us and commands us to his holy standard. Matthew 5. Yet the gospel message is also that we are fallen rebels. We are lawbreakers. Romans 3. We have chosen our own way and as a result we have earned death. Romans 6. More, we cannot make it right with God. We can't. We cannot make it right with God. We cannot bridge that gap ourselves. Beloved, we can't. And that is bad news. But thankfully, that is not all the news. There is more to the gospel. The gospel message is also that God made a way to make us right and to bring us back. John 3. That way was by way of his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark 1, the perfect, sinless God-man in flesh came down and lived the life, beloved, that you and I couldn't and can't. Christ lived that perfect life, then laid it down for his own. He laid it down for the repenting sinner that would turn to him in faith and trust. And yes, that glorious capstone of the gospel message is just that, that salvation is possible. 1 Corinthians 15 For those that repent of their rebellion and sin and place their belief and trust, mark this, in nothing else, in nothing else but in Christ for salvation. For those that confess him as Savior and as Lord, Romans 10. Church, that is the gospel. Simple, straightforward, and clear. Yet humanity, even redeemed humanity, has a way of still confusing what is very clear. Yes, our issue, church, and the issue of our fellow Christians in Galatia 2,000 years ago is that we dabble with this gospel message, always thinking that it needs more. It needs more. Now, we certainly would never say this or come to something like that and nod our heads, just like the Galatians didn't. Upon receiving Christ, it's recorded in Acts 13 and 14. The gospel message, remember, that they heard was this, Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, Acts 13. Could it be any clearer... Christ brought what law-keeping, what works, could never bring. Only Christ can do that. Forgiveness of sins. Christ the great and sure fulfillment. Christ alone. Upon hearing that, those Galatians, it says, rejoiced and believed in Christ alone. In fact, those Galatians started so well and understood that gospel truth so well that churches were planted in Galatia, 
And Paul and Barnabas committed that group to the Lord. That's recorded in Acts 14.23. I mean, that's how well they understood the gospel. And they were commended. That's how it starts for many of us. Strong out of the gates. We're firm. We are committed. We have gospel fidelity. But for the Galatians, it didn't last. Not long after Paul and Barnabas left them, Jewish Christian missionaries came to town. Jews, and that would be Jews, that acknowledged Jesus, right? This is not the hostility that you see in the Gospels. These would be Jews, by nature Jews, that acknowledged Jesus. They would even say he's the Messiah. But they also said that more was needed than Christ. In fact, they would have said it this way. More was needed to complete their walk. More was needed to complete their reconciliation. And of course, they turned to that old familiar, especially those Jewish Christians, as we would call them, known as Judaizers. They turned to that old familiar, which is, of course, the law, the Mosaic law, that ancient expression from Sinai, The Mosaic law, whose role was indeed at one time, it was this at one time, to keep God's people walking in right relationship with him. That was the purpose of the law for a time. Not salvation. This becomes clear in the New Testament. The law was never for salvation, but to keep God's people walking rightly, in right relationship with him. That was the purpose. Never to save. Never to save. However, even more, the fulfillment of that law had come. The completion, the culmination of it, he had come. And that completion was Messiah, the Christ. Remember, he came and did what the Mosaic law could never do. Deliver God's people from their sins. The Galatians were saved by that truth. They knew that. However... They still gave an ear to those Judaizers when they came to town. They knew that truth. When the Judaizers came and said, you need more to be complete in Christ, they listened. They gave a foothold to them. Even with that strong start, that clear understanding, they fell into spiritual relapse. Spiritual relapse. It's likely this relapse occurred within a few mere months of Paul leaving Galatia. And when Paul heard what was happening in this young Galatian assembly, he wrote this letter, the one that's open in front of you. That's the context for this letter, as these Galatians fall into spiritual relapse. This letter, as we saw this past fall, filled with loving, loving rebukes. Like the opening chapter. You have it open. Look at the first chapter. Remember this in verse 6. He opened with, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to, here it is, a different gospel, a different gospel. Indeed, it was a gospel of what? Christ plus the law, Christ plus works. That's not the gospel. It's certainly not God's gospel, but that was the gospel giving an ear in Galatia. And that's why reminders of the true gospel were needed in this letter. Like this, stated three times. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Three times Paul says, this is the gospel. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. And here it is, it can't be clearer. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. A person is not justified. We looked at that in other words. is not made right with God by works, by effort. Clear. Not only is the law powerless to save, but that's a perversion of its original intent and of its purpose. It was never meant to be that. And that's Paul's point in the third chapter. Remember, because if we're tracking with Paul, we come to the third chapter and we say, well, why then the law? Why then the law? And look at verse 19 in chapter 3. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The Mosaic law, we talked about those bookends there, until added, was temporal. Added until offspring, the seed, the Christ, should come. 
The Mosaic law was only added, it says, look at it, because of transgressions, because of sin. In other words, the purpose of the law was not to deliver us from sin. The purpose of the law was to point us to our sin. The purpose of the law was to say, look, you are sinful. You need to be freed from this enslavement. Even more, as we learn, the purpose of the law was to say, and you can't do anything about it. You can do nothing about it. You are enslaved. It's to bring us to our knees. Jesus brings us out clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. You can do nothing. Hence, to place ourselves then back under that bondage, back under the law, would be a regression and a relapse. I think we get this logically. To go back under enslavement would be relapse. That was a state of these Galatians and the occasion for this letter from Paul. Their spiritual father, who commended them, was now concerned And beloved, it is not just a letter for a first century church, only relevant to them. We say this all the time about the word of God. No, like all letters and all words in the Bible, they are timeless, ancient, eternal words, applicable of all time. Inspired words, perfect words, relevant always for all of God's people, for all people in every place. And in fact, Westmount, we need to consider the Galatian relapse as we think about spiritual relapse this morning. I want you to think about the Galatian relapse for a moment. I mean, they relapsed after just a few months, right? Let's settle in there, just a few months. I ask you this morning as we set the table, what about after a few years? Could relapse be possible? If it happens in a few months for that strong church, could it be possible for other churches after a few years? They relapsed with one influence, a Judaizer or Judaizers, one influence. How much more is relapse possible with many influences? I mean, turn on your TV or your computer and you know exactly what I'm talking about. How much more is relapse possible today when we're saturated with it? And and who is their mentor? Who is their father? The Apostle Paul. You would say it doesn't get, the pedigree isn't better than that, I ask you. How much more today is relapse possible when we don't have the Apostle Paul with us? Westmond, I hope you see as we set the table this morning, relapse is an ever-present, even more danger for us today in the culture that we live in. Church, we need all the warning and instruction that this letter gives us. And so in these verses, as we return to this letter this morning, we'll take heed of four characteristics, four of them, four characteristics of a spiritual relapse. Very clear in these short verses. Helpful for us today, I pray. These characteristics were evident of the Galatians in their relapse. And maybe, just maybe, you will resonate with something going on in this passage today. Maybe, as your New Year resolves fade, it's almost the end of January. It's a time when resolutions are long gone, right? And it's the time, beloved, when relapse kicks in. Maybe, just maybe, it sobers us up this morning to say, yes, I need to heed this this morning. Maybe we will heed it today, I pray. Let's begin with the first one in this passage. The first characteristic of a spiritual relapse is this willful enslavement. Willful enslavement. Let me call your attention back to verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Paul reminds the Christians of their former state. Do you see it there? Look at it. First he says what? You didn't know God. That speaks to a relationship. In other words, there was none. There was no relationship. You didn't know God. Ephesians 4.18 says of the lost, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Vivid language to demonstrate they don't know God. And that's it. That speaks to the fact that there is simply no relationship with God. However, mark this, friends, no relationship with God doesn't mean that one doesn't have a relationship to anything at all, right? It's not like you're living in a box and you have no relationship to anything. Oh, yes, there very much is that. And Paul says it here. Look at the end of verse 8. You were, in terms of your relationship, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That's your relationship. That's the unbeliever's relationship to those that by nature were not gods. And true of Galatia. For these pagan Galatians at one point, they were bound to all sorts of artificial gods, things that are not gods. 
Do you remember that scene in Paul's first missionary journey when he arrives in Lystra? There's a crippled man, presumably sitting in his state, and he looks at him intently. They're staring at one another, and God, through Paul, says to him, Arise, and he springs upon his feet. And what do those Lystrans do in Lystra? So they go, oh my goodness, the gods have come down and they're with us. They call Barnabas Zeus. They call Paul what? Hermes. They say the gods are with us. And what do they start doing? They call the priest of Zeus to come bring offerings and sacrifices to them. They're going crazy. It sounds like it's out of this Greek mythology fable. What does Paul say to them? Remember, it's so key. This is in Acts 14. What does he say to them? He says this. What are you doing? What are you doing? Turn from these, and remember his language, these vain things. What does vain mean? Empty. Turn from these empty things. And then he says something to the nature that ties us to this passage. We are men like you by nature. We're not gods. We're not gods. Yet what was the scene there? They couldn't help it. In fact, at the end of that passage in Acts 14, you know what it says? It says they could scarcely restrain themselves from offering sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they thought they were the Greek gods. Now, we may laugh and think that's right out of Greek mythology, but listen, beloved, as Paul says in that text in here, they couldn't help themselves. They're in bondage to it. Look, Zeus has come. Hermes has come. They were in bondage to it. Now, listen, those are Galatians. Lystra, right? That's in Galatia. It's the same group here at one time offering to Zeus and Hermes. Now listen. Imagine those Galatians liberated from that mythology. Freed from that folly, right? Imagine it. They're freed from it. Those made up, those artificial gods. Imagine their new freedom by the true God. Not Zeus, not Olympus, but the true God. Imagine they're free. They know God now, and that's the key. They know him. No more enslavement to those juvenile, elementary things of the world. They're free. Yet, yet, what is their desire? Look at verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? And listen to this. Whose slaves you want to be once more. That's remarkable. That's a willful wanting to go back. Do you see that? They want to go back. Paul says, how can you turn back to the elementary principles of the world? And then note that, how can you want to be slaves again? How can you want to? Is that what you want? You say, well, wait a minute. The Galatians aren't turning back to Zeus and Hermes, right? You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not turning back to that. You're right, they're not. However... The object of their enslavement is just as elementary as Zeus and Hermes. I'm going to show you how in a moment. The object of their enslavement, right, may not be Zeus and Hermes and Olympus anymore, but it is just as elementary as those things. I hope that makes sense. Look at chapter 3. Let's look at this and remind ourselves. Remember chapter 3, Paul gives this huge discourse on something that's elementary. What was the elementary thing? The Mosaic Law. Remember the pedagogos? What was the pedagogos? The one, the caretaker, the custodian. Do you remember that? Taking the juvenile because the juvenile couldn't do these things for themselves. So they come under the pedagogos. That's very elementary. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. That's what the law is doing. The law is holding the hand of the juvenile to say, you just hang on now. You just wait because fulfillment's coming in Christ. No, you don't cross the street. No, no, you, you talk to them respectfully. Just wait in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. You see that? Elementary things. Zeus, Hermes, Olympus. Elementary, juvenile, pedagogo, same elemental things. Same thing. It was for the Judaizers crashing town. It wasn't Zeus and Hermes, but what was their elementary principle? This, the law. The law, that was their refuge. These Jewish Christian missionaries crashed town with their own elementary thing. And it was the Mosaic law. And it was like the infant babe security blanket, Right? Or the soother that you just can't strip away because they just want to hang on to it. That's insightful, and we'll get to that later. They just couldn't let it go. And that blanket, that security blanket, far from that became what? More than a blanket, it became a binding. 
It just was binding them until they were enslaved. And you see this. Jesus has multiple discourses in the Gospels with enslaved people, and we know them as the Pharisees. They were absolutely wound up by the Mosaic Law. In fact, they created this, what they would have called it, an insulation to the Mosaic Law, the Talmud, all these other extraneous laws and so on, enslaved And now these Judaizers, these Jewish Christian missionaries had invaded Galatia and they had brought that enslavement to these pagan Galatians that were newly saved, these churches of Galatia. Not with that background, but with a very different elementary principle background. Who themselves, these Galatians, were once involuntarily enslaved to the elementary Greek gods, but now they were free. Saved by and to the one and only true God, made right before him, justified by faith in his son, Jesus Christ alone. Yet now, mark this church, here it is, yet now, they were free from that involuntary bondage, but now what are they doing? They're looking for willful enslavement under a Mosaic law. Willful bondage, once again. This time, instead of enslavement to Mount Olympus, it was to the Mosaic law. That's the source of bondage. The bondage of a system that didn't free you, but frustrated you. Here, the willful enslavement to all the fine points. Here it is of code and measurement. They desired that. They wanted that system. You know, it's remarkable, isn't it? The Mosaic Law, one might think, the trapping of the Jew. But here in Galatia, with these once pagans... Just as much a snare. I mean, you might be tempted to think these Galatians were Jews themselves once. How can that be? Why? How? Well, friends, listen. It's not so much about the slave master as it is about the slavery. That's the key. It's the slavery. It's the mode. And here, as we study this first characteristic of spiritual relapse, we're warned. When we see that desire, a similar desire growing within us, to adopt or come under a system. Have you been there? You want to come under something. Just give me parameters. Just give me how to. You feel it welling up in you. I need a system. All I need is a system. We look at our lives. We look for steps. We look for rules, codes, mantras, and then we place them on sticky notes everywhere. House, kitchen, journals, everywhere. All of these clever things. Clever systems. And little do we know we're relapsing. We're relapsing because we're looking for a system, not a savior. We're relapsing. We're regressing. This is our response. No Galatians, no Westmount. We can do nothing. I said it in the fall, and it'll be redundant as we close Galatians this spring. We do not follow a system, beloved. We follow a savior. We do not follow a system, we follow a savior. We obey him, we worship him, we do what he does. Not a system, nothing clever, only one, only Christ. That's who we follow. There is only one Christ, Christ alone. He did all the work and continues to. And all you need to do is replace those sticky notes that contain man's catchy laws and systems and replace them with the word of God, the word of Christ. That's what you need to do. The freeing truths, the freeing promises of God's word. Let us, talk about willful enslavement. Let us willfully enslave ourselves to God's word. Let's do that. That's what we do. Not the enslavement of anything that is by nature not God. Greek, Mosaic, modern, or otherwise. Spiritual relapse then is marked by willful enslavement. That's one, two. Impotent bankruptcy. Impotent bankruptcy. A couple of pieces to note here. First, look again at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? We've already peeked in on that. Look again. Paul says, but, but now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Again, look at Paul's clarification. It's not that we came to know God. You just get the sense Paul quickly wants to make sure there's no confusion. It's not about our ability, our sight, our work, our power, our thinking. No, look again. Paul clarifies it's rather that we came to be known by him. 
Grammatically, as you look at that phrase, that's passive. That's someone doing something to you. That's someone, again, an external agent to us doing something to us because we can't do it. That's what's going on in the language. It's just amazing. And it makes sense. In salvation, we are powerless. We know it, right? Think about this. We know this, beloved. It is Christ alone. We couldn't do anything to get out of our mire, to get out of our bog. We couldn't. Yes, God, it was God initiating, God loving first, that looked on our helpless state, came down and did what we cannot do. He did that because we are powerless and enslaved. And without that external help, that active divine help, we are lost. Now hang on to that and consider again, look at it in verse 9, those elementary principles. Paul describes them as weak and worthless. Those are two very strong words here. And again, the English, we do our justice, or we try to, to bring out the full force. Let's walk through them. Weak, look at that word. It means all that you know it to. It means without strength. It means feeble. It means powerless. Worthless, look at that next word. It similarly is no surprise. It means poor, beggarly, or of no value. However, written here the way Paul does, they have a very utter sense to them, to the extreme. So weak is not just decrease, but weak carries here the sense of absolutely no power at all or impotent. And worthless is not just pennies. That's not what's going on here. It is absolutely no value. In fact, we would say it's bankrupt. It's void. There's nothing. Put them together then, and you begin to gather the empty force of this scenario. Now, to be clear, again, to the point of redundancy, these words here are describing the efforts of one that would employ law or regulation. That's the description. To the one that wants to employ works, right, their own strength, their own effort, this is the description. And whether it's Mosaic law or our own strength, weak and worthless, if those works and efforts are to make ourselves right with God. That's the point. Remember, we're not talking about pursuing holiness. That's totally different. We need to sweat that out with all our strength. We're talking about to be right with God. I appreciate what Ryan said this morning, and it's so true. When you have those moments where you're lamenting your sin, don't feel there's anything you can do to make it right with God. Make it right with your brother and sister and all those things and do what's right. But in one sense, there's nothing you can do. You only heap yourself on the grace and mercy of God and thank God for the cross, right? We make it right, we repent and do those things. But there is nothing we can do in salvation to be saved, to be made right with God. There's nothing we can do at all. Paul says here those efforts are weak and they are worthless, especially if they're to perfect our reconciliation with God. There is no perfection. The perfection has come. It's Christ. Paul says, look at it, such elementary principles that would be seeking righteousness through the law are weak and worthless. It's as effective as impotent bankruptcy, if you feel the force of that. And beloved, a spiritual relapse always contains some element of this. Mark it every time. Spiritual relapse contains this every time. For the Galatians, it started here. Their relapse and desertion was just beginning. How do we know this? We know it's the beginning, because look at chapter 5, verse 2. Paul is going to say later, remember the threat of circumcision. Remember the threat was you have to be circumcised to be made right with God. Well, look what he says here. Look, I, Paul, chapter 5, verse 2, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, they hadn't yet, they were thinking about it, and we're going to see a hint in a moment of some other things they were doing. They were in the process of relapsing and deserting. So for the Galatians and this spiritual relapse, they were just beginning. They were just beginning. No doubt, they were yet to experience, if they continued this way, the full force of impotent bankruptcy. However, Westmount, for others, this impotency might be all too familiar. Maybe for us, sometimes in our experience, or maybe even today, you're much further down the road You're much further looking at the power of your own strength, right? Maybe just this week you said something like this, I'm going to do this. I am going to do. 
It often sets the table or indicates the relapse in progress. As a way to just get out and to get right with God, you are going to make it right in your strength. The brother caught in cyclical habitual sin, the sister that wonders why this just keeps happening to her, both focusing their energy on what still needs to be done. Have you been there? What still needs to be done to get out of this? What do I need to do? Do it this way, a friend says. Social media says do it that way. And you're looking for power. You're looking for a power source to help get you out. Trying harder, doing more. All the while the relapse deepens and you're sinking further and further. And your efforts, you're getting right with God, are only revealed for what they truly are. And that is impotent bankruptcy. That's what your efforts are. Our efforts to be right with God. To perfect our walk. To be more holy in that sense. To come unto some higher plane with God in our own strength. As this letter tells us, look at those two words again. Those efforts to be made right with God are only weak and worthless. Christian, can I say to you this morning, if you're truly a Christian here this morning, if you're genuine, you know better than that. You know better than that. You know who saved you. You know who saved you. And he didn't need your help. And he still doesn't. You know who saved you. He is not only powerful, but he's all-powerful. He is, in fact, the only omnipotent one. And his work is not only worthy, but the only kind of work that has any value at all, his work. How quickly we forget that in our spiritual relapses. No, church, Christ alone to save, Christ alone to sustain, that is the only way the Bible teaches. The only way out of your mire, your regression and relapse, is Christ alone. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and say, yes, that's me. I've been a type A. I've been a doer. I just need to do something. How do I get out of this? How do I know it's my own power? How do I know it's my own strength? Maybe you're asking that this morning. What does this mean? Well, it means you're not looking for strength apart from Christ and his word. You know, and that sounds so Christianese until you really think about it. Are you looking for supplements outside of God's word? We like our vitamin supplements, don't we? Are you looking for spiritual supplements outside of God's word? Look, there's nothing wrong with reading a book or watching what someone has to say, who you respect. But it's something entirely different to pledge and enslave yourself under that. You come under God's word. It needs no supplements, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Only God's word. It means that any power, and here it is, beloved, here it is. Any power is only through communion with God. What does that mean? It means you roll up your sleeves the old-fashioned, holy way. You pray. You read God's word. You sing. You be in fellowship. That's what it means. Commune with the holy God. Don't look for what system that they sell at Costco or whatever it would be. Don't do those things. The spiritual disciplines. What did we learn this past fall? That's the only way. Power comes through that. The power of God. Your strength. The only strength is in Christ, comes through those things. Pray, read God's word, study. It means that you remember your value and your identity is in not what you do, it's not in what you do, but it's in who you are in Christ. Can I say that again? It's not, your identity is in not what you do, right? Can you imagine if our identity is in what we did? We would be miserable wrecks, would we not be? Not only for some in their lot in life, but in the work of their hands. We'd be a mess if that was our identity. Praise God. Your value and worth is in Jesus Christ. And if you lose sight of that, you will relapse. Because you'll try to climb the ladder. And you will try to be more. No, it's done. Christ has saved you. He is your identity. That's the all-powerful worth of being in Christ alone. So spiritual relapse contains willful enslavement, impotent bankruptcy, and next, rigid ceremony. Rigid ceremony. Look at verse 10. Paul says this, You observe days and months and seasons and years. It just feels like that's going to go on and on, doesn't it? The depth of this characteristic is felt when you just track with this verse. Like, I mean, just let it sink in and you realize, wow, will this ever end? 
with what you're observing, right? I mean, it would be something to mark a day. Maybe at times it would be something to mark a month, right? It would be something. But that's not enough for this type of ceremony. This rigid ceremony always needs more. You see that? It observes not just days, look at it, but it observes months. Not just months, but seasons. Not just seasons, but years. It has no end to what it wants to observe. Now, it's true that various things were marked for observance under the Mosaic Law. That's just not in dispute. Sabbath, the Passover, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Weeks, on and on it goes. Each of those had different durations and very clearly prescribed for observance under the Mosaic Law. There's no question. Again, it's not in dispute. However, a couple of things are being communicated here in Paul's rebuke to the Galatians, and we need to just bring them to our attention as we think through our stead. First and most obvious, those observances, as real as they are in the Old Testament, are what? What did we learn last fall? They are gone. The past. The Mosaic Law. Remember the shelf life of the Mosaic Law? They have passed. I mean, we can itemize them all we want, and it's great to put on charts of all the feasts and all that, and it can be helpful, but... Chapter 3, verse 19 says, they're fulfilled in Christ, they're gone, they've passed away. And that does bring us to our second point. Why have they passed away? Why are they no longer operative? Because the fulfillment of those things has come. What does it say? The seed. Hebrews talks about that shadow. All of those things were a shadow of what is to come. Well, he's come. The fulfillment of those feasts. Christ is the new Passover lamb. Christ is our Sabbath rest, and so on. The Galatians, in their relapse, forgot that Christ is the great and sure fulfillment of the law. That means both in following the law, and here it is, what those law feasts pointed to, or we would say who they pointed to. There is no longer need to observe ceremonial days when the whole point of marking those days, what is the point? To point to Christ. That was the reason why God said, remember these days, so that you will keep looking forward to the fulfillment. But the fulfillment has come. Messiah. Now that is the obvious and practical point that Paul is making here. I mean, theologically we see how, right, observe strict, rigid ceremony like that has no place, right, when we think about coming under the Mosaic laws. That's one. But remember... That would be felt more by a relapsing Jew. I mean, if you're a Jew looking to relapse, you'll feel that force. But what about the pagan that loves Mount Olympus, history with Zeus and Hermes? You'd say, how does that apply here? Paul, in itemizing the calendar, is pointing to something even more that's for all of us, whether you're in Galatia or Peterborough. This is where we zone in, and that's our innate desire. Beloved, listen. We have an innate desire for observance and ceremony. We love this stuff. Listen to me. We love it. And I want to preface this by saying, listen, there is nothing wrong with observance. We just had one of our sons had a birthday yesterday. We had a fun time observing the day. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with Christmas and, of course, nothing wrong with Remembrance Day. That's not what we're saying. Those observed, here it is, for what they are, market church, and nothing more. They're not made to be anything more than what they are, and that's strictly just remembering and observing. That's it. However, we, we're not comfortable with that. We want it to mean more. We take days that should be nice and a blessing and helpful days, and we want to inflate them and take them to the extreme. We want to take days that mean nothing in and of themselves, and we want them to mean everything. And more, here it is. Here's the thrust of this passage. No work or favor with God is ever tied to us observing a day. Do you know that? No work. You're not right with God because you observe seasons and years. That's not the way that it works. You see this in in the world, right? Is there any wonder why churches are filled on Christmas and Easter all of a sudden with the neighborhood? And I mean, I've talked to people this way because it's a sense where you're doing something by showing up, by observing this day. Well, I got to get to church and then we can go to our parties. The world knows that, but listen, this text is not for the world. It's for you. You say, well, how does that relate to me? Because I'm not them, and I'm here every Sunday. Even though we talk about worldly examples or other modern examples, we get modern glimpses of this with us, church. The relapsed church. 
that really comes undone. Do you know of such churches that relapsed or relapsing church? It comes undone when this particular tradition is not met. It just comes unglued. Well, this tradition, I mean, what are we going to do? We observed this tradition for so long, our spirituality is tied to it. The relapsed brother, do you know the relapsed brother who all of a sudden to get right with God, he just needs to be at church events. Well, I need to start going to the men's group. I need to start going. All of a sudden, rigid ceremony kicks in in the spiritual relapse. Well, I just need to be there because you know what? If I'm there, it means something with God. Again, there's a dimension of that that could be true, but you know what I'm talking about. Your attendance is not going to earn you salvation points with God. Or the relapsed sister whose militant observance of the calendar is all everyone else needs. They just need a calendar. That's what they need. They need to observe days. That's their problem. Beloved, we love this stuff. We love to observe. We love ceremony. Our DNA and our fallen DNA just knits to this really well. We just say, just observe days, observe seasons, and we are going to be okay with God. Yet there's no fulfillment in any of that. Again, there's nothing wrong with a special day. But really, mark this, all of our days now, all of our days are fulfilled in Christ. Every single day of your life, I hope you're observing Christ. That is your ceremonial observance now, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do you observe Christ every day because he's the great fulfillment? That's the point. We don't need ceremonial days, right? And in fact, let me give you one more this morning with my background in the Catholic Church. It's one thing to show up on a Sunday to get right with God, and then what do you do Monday? Fall off the wagon, go do what you want to do, and you know what happens? You think you'll be okay if you just show up and observe again. No, beloved. In Christ means you observe him every day. Every day. And when we miss Christ at the expense of keeping a rigid ceremony, we miss everything. We miss everything. Church spiritual relapse is no ceremony along with enslavement and bankruptcy. One more. Concern. Concern. Verse 11, let's look at that. I am afraid, Paul says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. One aspect of this closing appeal is as if Paul is saying, Galatians, Galatians, was it all for naught? I mean, I was just there, Paul is saying, and is it all for naught now with what I'm hearing, the report I'm getting from what's going on among you? Is this all for naught? That's the thrust of verse 11. Is this all for naught? That first missionary journey, remember, as it's recorded in Acts 13 and 14, the labor, the persecution in Pisidia, the mistreatment in Iconium, what about the stoning? Remember in Lystra, the Zeus-Hermes incident, what about the stoning? And not just the hardship and the toil, but what about the reception? It says through that account, they rejoiced. They had the gospel. They received it. All of it, Paul says here, good and bad. Galatians tell me, was this just in vain? In vain? All of it for the sake of the gospel, Paul says, is this in vain? Is this in vain and empty like the gods you once served? Is that what this equates to now? All of this effort for the gospel. And it's now empty? When you look at that verse, that's a provoking final word from Paul to those Christians that he labored over in Galatia. However, there's something else here, and we can miss it. This is where it's helpful sometimes, the different translations. If you have an NIV or an NASB especially, they capture this really well. If you're reading one of those versions, this is what you have in there. It doesn't just say, right, that I am or I may be afraid or I am afraid. It says, I fear For you. I fear for you. Church, that is concern. Do you see that? That is genuine Christian brotherly concern. And that is something you will always find in spiritual relapse if, and especially when you have in your life and in your church, genuine brothers and sisters. You see that? In your spiritual relapse, you will always have concern. This is the mercy of fellowship. The church family that sees what you miss. The church family that sees what you're missing. And in your relapse, you get that text, you get that email, you get that call, and what is it? It is concern. It's concern. Before you're tempted to get defensive, because we do initially, don't we? 
When we're going astray and a brother loves us and says something, we get defensive. Or sometimes we just want to blow it off. Before we go there, remember the example here from Paul. And he wrote to these Galatians. And it was very much a letter of concern. Why? Because he just wanted to show his authority? No, because he loved them. He loved them. And in love, he was concerned because they were relapsing. They were regressing. And they were missing it. Those Galatians, not realizing it at the time, needed the body of Christ. Think about it. No one ever in a relapse thinks about that. In fact, you're more prone to think, I'm doing just fine, leave me alone. Those Galatians, though, needed other members of the body of Christ, like Paul, because they were relapsing, and here it is, they didn't know it. However, they were met in their relapse in love, and beloved, hear this, the rest is history. Because you may say, well, did they come out of the relapse? I want to know what happened to the Galatians. Did they come out of this? Well, this is what, not even just history, this is what the Bible tells us. The Galatian churches, remember Lystra, where they loved Zeus and Hermes and all of those things, vain gods? Do you know who they produced? Timothy. Timothy is from Lystra, picked up on the second missionary journey. He joins Paul on that, where Paul was stoned, by the way. Timothy joins. Timothy, his beloved son in the faith to Paul. In fact, on Paul's third missionary journey, as we think about Galatia, those churches are not only still there in that region, but there are disciples, Acts 18 tells us this, in the entire region of Galatia. You don't get that kind of language for other regions. The entire region of Galatia is filled with disciples. More than that, even those in neighboring regions, like Phrygia, saturated with disciples, Presumably flowing out of Galatia. As Paul sets out on that third mission, the Galatian disciples are gaining strength. Isn't that amazing? Coming off of this letter, this harsh letter, this loving concern letter. The relapse is behind them, and together as one body they stand in strength. It's amazing. Just like Westmount, I pray for us. Because we are no different to the Galatians. We are not immune to relapse. Is that not true? None of us are above relapse. doesn't matter how long you've been walking in the faith. Relapse can happen. And that is why our Lord has blessed us with the church, this church, the support of this body. And that is why identifying with the local body of Christ, the local church, listen, is just so important. So, so important. Because we all have blind spots. We are all growing. And as Romans 12.5 reminds us, church, we are all members one of another. And that is our great encouragement today in our fight against spiritual relapse. And today, we're going to recognize five individuals who get this. They understand that they're not islands. Today, we recognize five people that have been amongst us, and they say, no, this is our local church family. And now we are family. Five individuals who you know well now because they get it and they've been with us, integrated. I'm going to ask them to stand as we recognize them today. Ed Dickey, Karen Dickey, Barb Hybrandt, Fernand Saint-Ange, and Kim Saint-Ange to stand. These five, the Lord have brought brothers and sisters to us over the past few months. As we say, it seems like every membership we say this, don't we? It's no surprise as you look at the ones standing up here. They've been so faithful already, here, present. They get it. And they've quickly become part of the family here. You guys are beloved part of the family already. It's wonderful. And so we recognize them today. We do this all the time with membership. And I ask now your new church family to stand with you. Let's stand with them. I'll remind us all of our covenant together. This is our great fortification in relapse because it's not about this It's about what this is based on, which is this. Let me read like a wedding ring. Let me read the covenant together that we all hold to as members of this chapel and ultimately members of the body of Christ. Committing as a member means I am committed to Jesus Christ. This means I've repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. Committing as a member means I'm committed to the Word of God, This means I've submitted to God's word as my standard for all life and practice, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This naturally means I have taken the first step of obedience as a Christian in baptism and commit to the regular participation of the Lord's table when we gather together. 
Committing as a member means I'm committed to the body of Christ. I mean, in this sense, you look around, this is your family. This means that I'm committed to the other members of Westmount, Romans 12, 3 to 5. This commitment is demonstrated through faithful attendance, Hebrews 10, godly living, Romans 12, and cheerful giving, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 9. As well, this commitment to each other involves service to each other. I recognize that service is the natural byproduct of being a saved, changed, and committed member of the body of Christ. This means, at Westmount, I have talents, abilities, and giftedness given by the Holy Spirit for the common good of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4. I will exercise my talents, abilities, and giftedness at Westmount with humility and passion. Philippians 2. Committing as a member means I'm committed to the Great Commission. This means that I understand that the primary purpose of the local church, after gathering weekly to worship God and grow in Christ, is to fulfill Christ's command in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, by proclaiming the gospel through my word and my witness. And finally, committing as a member means I'm committed to unity. This means I've read, understood, and agreed to Westmount Bible Chapel's commitments, faith, and positions. As such, I will protect the unity of my church family by making peace and not division, Romans 14. I will pursue the unity of my church family by refusing to partake in gossip, Ephesians 4. And I will practice unity by following the leadership of our local church body, Hebrews 13. We welcome you. The church family, it is a joy to have our body of Christ here at Westmount grow and to be enriched with brothers and sisters like this. So let's take time now to pray for them, pray for us as we enjoy extended fellowship today downstairs in a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, you are so gracious to us. Lord, many of us come from very different families, very different DNA and biology. God, you've knit us together in this church family, identified by the head, Jesus Christ. And God, we're grateful. We're grateful for Ed and Karen, Barb, Fern, and Kim. Thank you that you've brought them here, Lord, to be with us and that we can be with them. Thank you, Father, for this rich, rich fellowship that we have in Christ. As you have progressed us along, Lord, we're mindful that all of these things are only from you. Help us all, Lord, as we commit to one another, as we are members one of another, as your word says. Help us to do that, Lord, not out of duty, not out of administration, not out of I have to, but out of love for you. Because ultimately, Lord, we know we are members of you and your son, Jesus Christ, members of the body of Christ. So may we serve and live and grow in love in him. As we thank you now, Lord, in Christ's name, amen.